Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty and this week I am joined by Kat Howard, who among other things wrote Stop Talking About Wellbeing and recently co-authored Symbiosis with Claire Hill. We talk about wellbeing and indeed discuss some of the lessons that we can take from remote teaching and learning and also thinking about what COVID taught us about flexible working in education. We also spend quite a bit of time talking about those all-important curriculum conversations and how to make them really deep and meaningful. It was great to talk to Kat and I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. And as ever, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around topics. The views my guest and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Kat Howard. Now, Kat is Head of Professional Learning at the David Ross Educational Trust Teaching Schools Hub. She is also an author and founder of Lit Drive. Hi, Kat, how are you? I'm good, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here, especially as you're not feeling very well today. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> sorry. What a rotten way to start start the uh, the school year there. Um, could you maybe tell listeners who are not so familiar with your work uh, a little bit about you and your career to date? Of course, yeah. So I'm currently Head of Professional Learning at the Dreft teaching school hub um, I think it's a really exciting time um, nationally um, with the, the kind of evolution of the, the teaching school hubs place serving regions we serve um, Lincolnshire but I think it's just a really exciting time generally um, to support that work um, previous to my role at um, the teaching school hub I have been senior leader um, I was senior leader and all through school for a period of time and then prior to that, a middle leader in, um, in the school prior to that, um, kind of overseeing things like um, challenge across the curriculum and the development of English curriculum itself and, um, and looking after kind of whole school literacy. So, so really getting my teeth into that. Um, I came to teaching quite late. So previous to teaching, I um, was an area manager, regional manager for a leading high street bank and was... Um, kind of my remit was overseeing recruitment and retention and that, that, that employee journey and how we supported employees at various points in that journey, but particularly looking at kind of entrance points and exit points and how we can improve that experience and really learn from the data that, that, that you know, those periods of time presented to us when, when employees came in and, and that induction process and then when they left as well. Um, probably quite interesting maybe to talk about is um, my time on maternity leave with um, my middle son and my youngest son, which is when I founded um, a charity called Lit Drive, which supports English teachers with professional development and, um, and resource materials, curriculum materials um, across the UK. So we started out as a, a kind of tiny non-profit. That's what happens when I get bored. And um, <laughs> and it very quickly evolved. We now have over 20,000 members worldwide, which is really exciting. Um, lots of kind of international schools, as well as the, 
um, the, the membership base within the UK and um, over 50 volunteers who are all serving English teachers that support that work. So, um, you know, that, that's been a really exciting project to, to keep alongside my full time role in school. Fantastic stuff. Lots, lots to talk about there, I'm sure. And we're, you know, really p particularly interesting to hear about your your previous experience uh, on that kind of uh, training development um, side of things, because we're talking kind of early in, in the school year of 2020, 2021, September time we are talking. And obviously, the, the last two years of COVID kind of ran into each other really uh, a lot of you know absence of a break and a lot of people feeling absolutely exhausted uh, it's tempting at this time of, of of the sort of new school year to have a focus on on well-being uh, but why particularly for anyone who who might not have read your very successful book should we stop talking about well-being in schools yeah, I, I kind of I wrote Stop Talking About Wellbeing um, during my my other maternity leave. Again, this is what happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the curse of boredom. Um, and really because I found that having moved from another sector into teaching, I found it quite frustrating um, that I think whilst you know, we, we are a public sector and, and we are governed by national policy to a degree. I thought there was a great deal of kind of tensions existed within schools um, and school communities that impacted really quite, um, you know, had quite a detrimental impact on teacher well-being um, that we that we had some autonomy over, that we had some, you know, some ownership over and could do things about. And, and, and yet we weren't doing that. And I think a great deal of the the mindset around well-being that I, uh, having spoken to colleagues and worked with schools, um, was seeing was that well-being was seen as something that we could take care of. It was seen as something, you know, somewhat of a process and not necessarily an outcome. We weren't really talking about well-being as a result of other things being put into place, like sensible policy and, you know, improving processes at an operational level in school or improving HR um capacity and what that might look like because it you know i think there was a danger of perhaps you know moving to if we think of the national landscape moving to academization and, and you know multi-academy trusts and um, there's a great deal to be learned operationally about how to support employees as, as part of being you know a larger organization a slightly more perhaps organized organization than, than maybe schools were in the past um, yet we weren't doing that necessarily. And so we were, you know, having training sessions for, for colleagues, for, um, for, for teachers and, and support staff around well-being and how to take care of, of well-being. But then, you know, a crazy feedback policy um, existing in schools that was expecting teachers to work, you know, mark fortnightly. You know, some schools were reporting 24-hour turnaround marking policies. And, and, you know, it, it, it sounds like a, a catastrophizing almost, but, but it, it was very much something that was, that was happening in, in schools. And when you're trying to have a conversation around 
well-being um it's probably not that useful to actually tell people how to look after themselves because i think that we all know how to look after ourselves as individuals um, we all know what's good for us we all know what you know makes us feel fulfilled we probably don't need a great deal of, of time invested in, in in telling us that what what we do need are the the mechanisms of support that enable us to do that and so I suppose stop talking about well-being was was my response to all of those you know well-being bingos and and the um, you know yoga relaxation on a Thursday sessions and you know meditation on a Monday morning when you know that you've got to get staff briefing that just didn't make sense to me because we weren't actually maybe getting to the root cause of the problem particularly when there was an abundance of research out there that that could help us to start having those conversations and and reframing the way that we look at teacher well-being I think overall. Yeah it's almost as if you're saying by putting this emphasis on we need to do well-being it's sort of accepting that people will be a bit broken and stressed and and tired so then you do something at that point to make them feel better again (laughs) so wouldn't it be better if they didn't get to that condition in the first place yeah and Um, I also think it makes some assumptions around um it, it, it kind of sets off the conversation on, a, on a, a wrong term because we're starting to make assumptions about whose fault it is and where the blame lies around, you know, who's who's responsible for looking after that, that you know, that individual sense of, of well-being and, and where that comes from and what's within your control and what's not within your control. And I think, um, you know, a, a strain of effective leadership in order to provide that, that support mechanism for staff isn't necessarily you know, taking um, responsibility, sole responsibility for somebody's well-being, but at the same time, it is a duty of care, saying, okay, what what can we do? Where can we work so that, um, you know, it, it passes the the double, what, what Claire and I refer to in, in, our, in my other book as, you know, a litmus test of, you know, will this improve student outcomes um, and will this be detrimental to, um, to teacher workload? Um, and if we're, we're not able to pass both of those tests, then, then why are we doing it in the first place? And I think it's returning to that as a good, you know, as a good start point, I think, when we're thinking about um, rather than, okay, who's, whose responsibility is this? Because actually, I think it's very much a shared duty of care in terms of well-being. Yes, um, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear if you're as that that book was written before the sort of great remote learning experience experiment call it call it what you will what what do you think what what impact uh, did some of that have on on this general well-being conversation and and um, what what do you think will be the long lasting kind of impacts um, or changes as a, as a result of of the pandemic. Obviously, we're not we're not quite clear of it yet, but I'm interested to to hear what you think might change. I think that um, I think it was really interesting to see the first for CPD for continuing professional development, mm. and, and the, you know the lit drive community was really indicative of that. We moved to um, an online provision as well as some you know really key. Um, people in the field that produced you know on online provision and there, there was such a thirst for that you know teachers were really interested in using that time to um to be really reflective about how they were how their roles were changing how they were having to and um, to navigate that um during that period of time um 
I actually worked with Oaks National and it was really interesting to see, um, you know, how quickly teachers adapted to something that was really quite alien for them. And I think we've learned a great deal about um, pedagogical principles and, and how maybe, um, you know, teaching online as a, as a teacher is really quite exposing um, and, and could feel that way. And I think that um, it, it was really helpful for a great deal of colleagues to have conversations around um, how and um, what was important and going back to the underpinning principles of teaching. Um, and that was really quite useful. I also think it did monumental things for, um, for development of trust in schools, that sense of collaboration as well. And I think that colleagues that I spoke to, the professional relationships that existed, but maybe weren't as close or, or you know, hadn't existed on that level before of having um, personal conversations or check-in, just welfare conversations that didn't necessarily exist before. We assume that everybody's okay unless they say otherwise, but actually we were being far more explicit with wellbeing checks and, you know, just making sure that people were okay and having that ongoing understanding that that, that everybody was at a different point of, of this process of understanding, you know, their place within the pandemic and the implications that it would have for them you know several colleagues had um were ill themselves or or had family members or friends that were ill um and there, it was navigating that difference or acknowledging that difference that you know some members of staff when it came to september were raring to get back into the building some were very very tentative and it was having that understanding that there was no one-size-fits-all approach to you know, to, to, to looking after staff effectively, that it's very much responsive to the individual. And I think that's been a really significant learning curve across the profession as a whole, that I think we, we definitely, when I, when I speak to colleagues, we understand each other better because that there had to be that, that personal tone, that, that level of, of kind of interpersonal um, communication that had to exist, that, that maybe was an optional extra before. So I think that's, um, that's been such a, a, you know, a positive outcome of this period of time for what, what has been such a challenging period for, for teachers to, to get to grips with, as I say, you know, a, a, a method of teaching and approach that would have felt completely alien before this period. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you're saying there. It kind of makes me think it almost, it sort of breaks apart the kind of school bubble a bit because you know there's a feeling if everybody's in the building at at work and you've got you know certain policies procedures and everything that everybody's doing face to face um you know it's sort of happening the same for everybody even if it isn't um you know that's just sort of part of 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 the construct and then if you start to kind of pull pull people out of it and as you say kind of dig into to, to well-being and, and welfare in, in, in more depth and get those conversations going. Or equally, uh, people connecting across schools and across trusts with colleagues within their subject or people who just kind of see the world in, in their way and, and, you know, kind of, I guess, almost choosing your own staff room to a, to a degree. Um, you know, that has an impact on on maybe how some people are, are thinking and, and feeling about things. And, and as you say, that thirst for CPD and sort of seeing what's going on differently. Um, 
and also maybe more thought about um you know where where you do have to spend time and um you know being tailoring to a particular person because so much could be kind of recorded and transmitted and um that kind of thing um i mean e- e- even as you say with, with teaching with, with with oak national okay you've got a recorded lesson but but what is it you're doing around that and yeah. and it was um that hyper awareness almost of, of even the way that you you know if we're thinking about the, the teacher-student relationship even the way that you explain things in a particular way and how that might be interpreted and how you anticipate how that might be interpreted it it it, it really did strip teaching back to in you know in the best possible sense to its bare bones as to you know as to how we how we deliver that effectively to students how we how we draw from you know the the sub, not just subject knowledge but pedagogical knowledge of, of of what effective explanations look like and you know some of the best professional development that i undertook was was during that period of the pandemic maybe not necessarily for the content itself um but definitely for those collaborative conversations the discourse that that we had around you know ongoing persistent problems that that we were finding you know shared challenges that we were finding as part of the the oak national team but also um you know within schools that that sense of collaboration i would i would argue that that definitely came into its own during during that period of time and um you know that was that was something that was really really nice and stayed with us and 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 i i know personally that i developed relationships with with colleagues that you know it was a very odd period of time because i i i hadn't necessarily got to know every member of the english team that i was working within and it provided such an opportunity to do that because um it, it distilled doesn't it having having a ver- i think having a virtual conversation david crystal speaks quite um um, extensively about this really interesting about that that kind of the, the um he calls it the the presence of the lag um in the in a virtual conversation you, you don't you don't have that you interrupt people i'm the worst you know face to face i'm the worst for interruptions you can't do that in a virtual virtual conversation you have to listen you have to make that time to allow the lag as such and um and i i think that that alone resulted in in some really fantastic conversations yeah really really interesting there yeah i mean watching the oak national lesson lessons back especially from other colleagues and i think this is why it was so useful is because you know when else would you get the opportunity to dip into so many different people's classrooms and learn from them and learn from you know and it's it's I think it's moving away from, you know, if I think to early careers teachers and where that was when I started training, there was often a temptation to emulate. It moves us beyond that to then start seeing how different people approach, you know, delivering particular instructions or, you know, or modeling particular examples and really kind of take from that to make it our own. And yeah, there were there were so many takeaways from from that period of time. It was yeah, it was just really valuable. And and it's interesting actually, as you as you say, because it is so stripped back almost. Sometimes when you're observing 
when you're observing lessons and you're also seeing the interactions and the dynamics with the pupils, you know, you especially as you say as an early career teacher, you could just be distracted by, you know, that person's kind of confidence or style or the kind of bells well, and you, whistles. You just, you just work out how to how to be them, especially mm. when it came to behaviour management. You're like, okay, right, I need to be that person. Mm. I'm going to go back into my classroom and that's who I'm going to be. And I remember as an early career teacher, you were always taught, you know, go and watch other people's lessons. But you had really, as a novice, no real idea what you were looking for. So that, you know, there's so much dead time there, isn't there, of, mm. of just you know, seeing people and not necessarily knowing what you're doing with it. And and I think the, the online platform that, that's been created there enables us to think about, you know, teaching the, the model of teaching itself as opposed to I want to be that teacher. Yeah, and it kind of, uh, you know, for good or ill, remote learning kind of flattens flattens that personality and kind of pizzazz a little bit for everybody, doesn't it? Um, so you don't feel as kind of like, wow, I'll never be as confident or whatever as this this person. You're really just looking at how are they explaining yeah. this thing. But it, but at the same time, I think it was really interesting because we we would always talk about being an exaggerated version of yourself. And I remember teaching. I remember when I first put my my first Oak National lesson together. I came away and I felt like not like a game show host, but I felt like a very pantomime caricature of myself. Um, and then it just became second nature because what you do is, you, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to demonstrate the love of your subject, you know, it, it, to, to an empty room. And it, and it became, um, it became really fun. It became a really, a really fun kind of, you know, and thing to play around with, yeah. I think because um yeah you know te teaching english is really exciting so uh, you know putting that across was was really important sometimes the absence of feedback uh kind of makes you go that bit further <laughs> that's definitely yeah, exactly. what i find no it in. <laughs> it's like presenting a webinar to 300 people i'm like a crazy woman um anyway yeah no that's that's just really interesting um reflections and ideas there and uh, I mean, you, you, you mentioned it, it earlier there, you did a phenomenal amount of work when you were on maternity leave. And I know you've been involved uh, in contributing to the Maternity Teacher, Paternity Teacher project. Um, and Emma, Emma Shepard's been a guest on the podcast talking more about that. We'll put a link to it there as well. And, and, and Women Ed. And of course, you, you set up uh, Lit Drive, uh, writing books <laughs> um, as well. Now, I mean, it, we, we can talk a little bit more about some of those those projects, but um, I was kind of interested in in what advice you have for somebody who 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 wants to engage in these wider sector conversations, or maybe write write a book even, but they're worried about raising their head above the parapet, um, and and frankly how they might kind of manage this al alongside their their day job and other commitments. So it'd be good to hear more about kind of your experiences and any advice that you've got for listeners. Yeah, and, and, and do you know what? This is a question that, um, that, that I get asked a lot, actually. I think um, it's either when do you sleep or, <laughs> um, <laughs> or I want to start a blog. I want to start, you know, I want to start a book. But I feel like I don't know anything. I feel like everybody knows more than me. And, I, you know, I, I always say if you're going to start a blog, um, you know, I started my blog with an NQT and I look back at the, the posts from, you know, from, from then and they're absolutely diabolical. Um, 
there would be of use to no one but I always I always say write to yourself I don't write for anybody really to to read what what I'm I'm writing I write to make sense of things so often it will be you know if I've written if I've read an article or I've read a research paper or something or you know I've kind of struggled with something for a period of time um, uh, at school and, and made sense of it or want to make sense of it I'll just write something and so I think it's always important to kind of write write with your previous self in mind that's probably the the most useful way of, of looking at it rather than writing for anything anybody specifically because you could you could chase that that tail forever couldn't you and it you know it doesn't necessarily it's not useful to you and and ultimately i think before anybody else the book you know a blog or a, something that you write should be useful um useful for you to make sense of something um I think in terms of, I, I wrote a blog a, a while ago, and I think it was called something like how to write a book um, with a cupboard full of gin and, and three children or something along those lines. <laughs> um, because, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like this, this story alone of, of how I write books is very underwhelming, but it's normally, um, it, it, it normally starts on a, a wallpaper, those awful rolls that you get at Ikea for your children of, um, of wallpaper drawing paper. <laughs> Um, and just mucking out an idea and, and normally it just starts with a question that I don't really know the answer to and that was that was really you know with with, um, with stop talking about well-being how the, the book came about because I didn't understand why we had you know why am I working in a profession where I'm told how many hours a year are directed um, I've never worked in a job before where I'm told how many hours I will work at the beginning of the year and it's also a lie yeah. <laughs> when oh, you don't yeah. work um, 1,265 hours and I found that really alien or you know why are we why is it that somebody can be at one particular school and have really quite sensible policy and somebody be down the road five miles down the road and that school doesn't speak to that school and they have a completely different sense of what culture is about or relational trust or psychological safety and you know things like that so it, it really does tend to start with the question I mean um, when I wrote Symbiosis with with Claire, that was a, a kind of follow up to um, essentially I, I ran out of space and stopped talking about well being about the things that I wanted to, <laughs> to talk about and had a nugget of an idea because I was like you know um, never underestimate the the um, the power of a decent curriculum if teachers are, are are teaching really fantastic stuff and having conversations about subject curriculum and and the, the stuff that they love to teach. Um, then they're probably going to feel better about going to work every day. And I, I just hadn't figured out the answer to the question yet. And, and Claire, you know, kind of helped me out on that because um, she's incredibly intelligent. So um, I suppose, yeah, my advice is, is really just to, um, you know, try and answer questions that you, that you have in the first place. And if you don't necessarily come to an answer, then that's, that's fine because it's just for you. And and it, you know, it, it should be it should be self-serving. I think before anything anything else. I think um, there's a danger of getting distracted by um, trying to, you know, fulfil an, an audience need and things like that. And actually, it might not necessarily fulfil you as a person. And then you wonder, you know, why why on earth are you doing it anyway? But um, yeah, that and probably not watch a lot of television. Reduce <laughs> time on on your maternity leave, which uh, is is something that, that that obviously drove you in terms of, as you say, your kind of own um, intellectual curiosity at a time when um, your your focus is is it can often be on slightly more mundane or um, poo related uh, conversations. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and, you know, that's obviously something that, that we've, we've discussed more about people, you know, obviously being people's particular choice, but obviously mm. it did present you with a, with an, with an opportunity there of a longer, of a longer piece of time and you clearly, clearly used it. Yeah, I am, um, I, I completed the accreditation with MTPT and, you know, Emma was actually my coach for, for the period of time that I completed it. And, um, and I ended up um, having coaching through the MTPT for probably about two and a half years because it, it you know, and I, I, I'm, I mean this with the gravity of the, the words, it, it changed my life. It changed my perspective on where I saw my career going. It changed my approach in terms of, um, you know, what was important to me and, and how to maybe say no to things that were less important to me. And, you know, that it's, it's, and making that permissible, making that acceptable and, and just distilling, I think, my thought process on, on a lot of things professionally. So, um, you know, it, it's such a fantastic initiative of its own kind. And, and I think that, um, that it, it really did change the way in which I, I viewed myself as a teacher and, and, and kind of the, the things that I wanted to do. It was, it was really quite instrumental to that. And, um, you know, what Emma and the, the team are doing there is, is, is something really quite special. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, it's something that to, to be to be conscious of it, the kind of power of role models there you know seeing somebody who who comes into an inset day with a baby ultimately their choice because they wanted to not because anyone's saying you have to um but you know taking that time for them for themselves to connect with colleagues to keep in touch um simple things like that where until somebody does it everyone's yeah. like oh i didn't know we were allowed to um, i remember um I remember going to, I took my son to, to quite a lot of things. I went, took him along to primary um, moderation and, you know, a lot of staff meetings and whatnot. But I remember um, the first Educating North Ants ran in um, at the University of Northamptonshire. Carly Waterman and the team had put together the event. And I, I took my youngest along because Lit Drive was sponsoring their, their English strand. Um, and uh, it blew people's minds. And, and I remember um, Amorose from um, Tess coming along to my session and tweeting out a picture of um, what was Max sitting incredibly poorly in a, in, a, in a baby carrier because it was the only way he'd sleep. He'd like sleep, you know, halfway down your body. And, um, and, and me presenting and it, you know, and, and it, got, it got such a, a wonderful reception because I think that we don't we don't share that enough, and we also I think we also don't share um, the the possibilities that lie in flexible working. And I suppose coming back to to what you were saying before, Caroline, about um, about what we can learn from this period of time and what we can learn from the pandemic is that there's been that 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 span across the profession of people working together, and you know, no longer having to worry about geographical limitations you know that I'm, I'm currently you know the, the the teaching hub that I that I work within and oversee is is two hours from my home and I you know I balance that time in order to make sure that you know that, that I'm I'm a parent as well as as, as um, you know carrying out that role but that's that's become less imperative to us as we start to think about what we what we can achieve and you know that flexibility um and i think that's that's the other reason why um you know mtpt is so helpful for that because 
um, and the link, the explicit link to well-being, because you know things like, and I, we we can't ignore that women between the age of thirty and thirty-nine are, are our biggest leavers, and there's a very significant reason for that. And whilst the national picture of professional development is really exciting to see the kind of you know early career teachers and the golden thread into MCQs, we do still need to keep an eye on where you know we're not we're not necessarily quite as good as at making sure that that we remain flexible for um for parents particularly mothers as they move through teaching um and and hopefully i think the the last year and a half can provide us with with some key insights around how actually we can work around um and we can introduce schools to flexible working policies that maybe work better than standard organizational working policies because we're not standard organizations we're schools and and how we how we start to go about that work in a little bit more detail i think that's the that, that will hopefully have been a huge learning curve for schools indeed indeed and just want to move on to focus a bit more on curriculum and and some of the subjects in your in your second book um, so you wrote Symbiosis um, with with Claire Hill, who you who you mentioned earlier, and it's been a very timely contribution to the conversation about about curriculum. And um, you, you talk a lot about how it's it's so important to involve classroom teachers in the curriculum conversation more effectively. So I just wondered if you if you could share a few tips on how schools could best do that and and the sort of benefits to that. Yeah, I think um, I think the the review of the fra- the Ofsted framework and this focus on you know a knowledge rich curriculum and, and what that really meant and, and you know and how schools might look to define that in their curriculum rationale really marked um, the move the shift from curriculum being presented as somewhat of a holy grail of something that was just the work of head of department would squirrel away at the end of the year put together a new plan and deliver it to teachers. Um, and, and that approach really disregarded the, the combined um, expertise of teaching staff. Um, and really, Claire and I wanted to open up that conversation around, okay, well, you know, where are we upskilling and developing all staff to, to develop um, curriculum? But actually, also, how are we using, once we've, you know, once we've provided staff with that core knowledge around curriculum theory and, 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 and how subjects you know, work as their own entities and also with one another. Um, Where are we actually providing the curriculum as a vehicle to build really collaborative teams and and develop that sense of discourse? And, you know, um, so, you know, as a a leading example, where were we providing, um, you know, conversations where we're actually finding out what degrees teachers that we work with have undertaken and what their expertise are you know where, where are they particularly specialized are we having that conversation before we we put you know make choices around our curriculum offer um or you know where are we having conversations um where we've decided that we want to teach you know with an english head on we've decided that we want to teach um greek mythology but we haven't actually asked our teachers where their subject gaps are in, in regards to Greek mythology before we send them out into the wilderness to teach it. And, you know, are we having those conversations? So it was really about making that connection, as I say, between, you know, um, well-being and how teachers feel about being in work every day. But actually, the, the biggest vehicle that we have in order to make people feel a, a real sense of fulfillment in schools is, is using the curriculum as a vehicle to do so. 
and and I think making sure that we realize that that's not to the detriment actually that's really quite good that that's that's going to contribute to improving the student experience overall um and and I it, it was a really it was a, re a kind of evolution of um of a conversation that I had with um I interviewed Christine Council for stop talking about well-being and said, well, I want to, I've got this nugget of an idea and I want to unpack it around this connection between, you know, well-being and, and all being part of the curriculum and part of curriculum development and how we might do that in schools and how we might create the infrastructure. And Christine said, well, why, why wouldn't people do that? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and so, and it was, you know, this conversation where, it, you know, there, there were some realisations around, okay well in an ideal world yes this is this is how we drive curriculum in schools and this is how we equip teachers with subject knowledge and pedagogical knowledge and curricular theory um, and this is what it might look like and this is how we might implement ongoing professional development around you know around curriculum development to ensure that we're future proofing um our our curriculum designers of the future so that our early career teachers are are in five years going to be in a position where they feel confident to lead as heads of department where how how might we go about that and how, how might we support teachers to do so um and yeah we've had some really exciting conversations come out come out of the book i think where it's, it's almost been a, a start of the 10 which is is really exciting you know teachers are really excited to to, to find out more about i had a, a message a dm only last night i think it was about nine o'clock saying um I want to read more about knowledge or knowledge types and knowledge structures and you've really got me thinking but I just don't know where to start and it, you know those conversations are so exciting um because that it, it's it's not the big it's not the big grand gestures that are going to keep people in teaching it's it's those those conversations are going to to keep people in teaching yeah and and I think it's so interesting what you're saying there about um degrees particularly because it's one of those things, isn't it? If you love your subject and you study it at degree level and you enjoy your degree, everyone says, well, right, are you going to go and be a teacher then? Like, you know, clearly you really, really love it. And then and then to not, you know, dig into well, what did people specialise in and what aspects of it did they, you know, do they really enjoy? Do they really feel confident in um, and and use that to your ad advantage? Um, and and as you say, those kinds of um, really high level professional conversations about about knowledge and, and these topics are are so much more in, engaging and really getting to the heart of the matter than some of the, you know, administration policy things that, that you know, you, you can get bogged down in through that departmental um, structure. Um, so, yeah, really. Um, I think um, I think there's a I think that sometimes there's a real um, intimidation with curriculum. I think that we've started throwing the word around and it, it can feel quite alienating, I think, for, for some teachers and, and some of the terminology around curriculum um, maybe isn't necessary for, for school level work and, and what, we, what we need to do. And, and actually, Claire and I wanted to present the idea that, um, that we're building re professional relationships through um, through using the curriculum as a vehicle and so whilst what we teach is incredibly important um having that shared understanding i think and the, the yeah the, the the professional relationships that we develop as a result are are equally as important um, and that's what's going to to drive curricular improvement over time is people working really well together 
Yeah, exactly so. And thinking about particularly in a secondary structure where you might be line line managing people whose subject you you don't maybe have specialist knowledge in or looking across a sweep of, of subjects at, at, at you know a primary and 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 those kinds of things how if 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 leaders are making decisions and and, and leading those conversations how how do you make sure that they are genuinely kind of deep meaningful and and purposeful um, and, and really linked back to um, you know the experience for, for, for pupils and their ability to kind of go on and learn at the next stage. Mm. And we we write extensively in the book about the autonomy and the empowerment that should be given to subject leaders, and obviously that needs to be you know quite thoughtfully structured, and and people need to be feel supported in that process. But ultimately, if I'm going, you know, I, I line managed PE for my sins over the last year. And um, the best person to inform me about how knowledge should be sequenced within the PE curriculum is definitely the head of PE or the, the PE department as a whole. And, and I think that that's the danger that, that maybe historically senior leaders have felt in a position where they needed to know it all, that in order to, to line manage subjects, they, they just needed to, you know, there was assumption of all knowledge when actually, you, you know, you have a, a brilliant team there who are more than ready to inform you. And I think the role of the senior leader is actually creating those conditions to ensure that subject leaders are able to work effectively with their teams in order to, to develop, develop curriculum over time, um, that they're working with subject leaders to really upskill their knowledge around how their subject could be sequenced logically and you know how to draw from prior knowledge and what that means and how learning works and how student memory operates over time and and having conversations around those things but then equally listening about how that would be informed by the subject to make sure that we're not just going in really generically and saying okay we're doing retrieval practice now we're all going to do retrieval practice the same way but actually, you know, the subject leader should be leading that conversation about what that might look like for their particular subject, what it needs to look like in order to, to really um, help students learn over time, as I say. So I think that senior leaders have a, you know, a really imperative role in making sure that the time is available for subject leaders to do this work. We can't just say that we're, you know, we're doing curriculum now and and then leaving subject leaders to kind of make the time for that to happen. We, we really have to communicate that that's ultimately their core purpose. And it's, as you say, um, removing administration, removing operational conversations um, from subject meetings and, and making it about, you know, what is it that we're teaching? What's it looked like over the last week? What might the week ahead look like? Let's have some collaborative conversations or collaboratively plan how we might deliver this particular piece of content. That's going to be really useful for my subject leader. Deciding what's going on the ESPO order, probably not so much. So as a senior leader, I have a responsibility to make sure that those conversations are able to take place. Yeah, and I guess also what you're kind of implying there is that this is, you know, this is ongoing work and you know particularly around the Ofsted changes is a bit of a kind of flurry of we need to get our curriculum sorted <laughs> for Ofsted um, and you know how you actually evolve evolve these things more organically and more more continuously rather than like okay it's in a box now we don't touch it for another three years. 
yeah or it's in a you know it's in a dusty document and um so it's fine we'll just you know wipe the dust off the dusty document but and and, and i but i think that comes back to our temptation to need to measure things or record things teaching's a really funny beast in the fact that a great deal of what we do is intangible so you know i, th I think acknowledging that as a, as a staffing body or with colleagues is a really important part of the process of understanding that you can't see learning and there are some things around curriculum development that you can't measure and you'll see that in the, you know it's like the age-old question of you know what does the quality of teaching and learning look like in your school well i need to go into the classrooms i need to talk to teachers and then i'll be able to to tell you um because yeah there, there's so much through colleagues being able to articulate the curriculum or colleagues being able to articulate why they're teaching what they're teaching that week how it connects to the previous week or the previous month or the previous term and how it will set students up for, for further for future study um, you can't put those conversations into a document and so what we're doing is really developing people I think in, in the intellectual sense yeah and, and linked to that that trust point as well um, that you know as a leader you're having to let go and assume and you know those conversations are happening and 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 good things will result in them rather than necessarily needing to see them evidenced and just just thinking if there are if there are people who kind of in the service of of, of catch up are um taking as this as we say this kind of um living breathing complex interconnected um beast that is the curriculum and trying to think a little bit about about how they might need to make some decisions to um, reorder, reorganise, remove bits from that. Um, what what things should they be thinking about? Yeah, if we kind of set aside the fact that unfortunately the the exam boards might make that decision for us in due course, I think it's really starting about. Um, what 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 do you want students and, and this is simplistic what do you want students to know how do you want students to experience your subject so as an English teacher can I remove Shakespeare from the English curriculum no I cannot because it's it's you know it makes the, the, the English curriculum authentic and it makes it in its traditional sense so where am I providing students with an experience that provides them with the traditions of the subject, you know, the ancestry of the subject. If they go to university at a future point, well, they recognise um, English in, in the way that I taught it. Or actually, you know, if we look quite frankly at our curriculum, is it a diluted version of, of itself? And having those really frank conversations at subject level, I think is really important. If you're looking at whole school catch-up then it really needs to come down to the questions that you're asking of your subject leaders need to be of a really high quality so uh, things around you know where where are students what do students currently know what do they require what will they need to know that they maybe don't yet know for future study and it is coming back down to those core fundamentals um, the, thankfully, there's been a great deal of work around um, the detrimental impacts of testing, um, not just detrimental upon the students, but detrimental for actually providing the knowledge that we think that we will get from carrying out testing. Um, and so anybody that's kind of looking at, at catch up, really, you really need to hand the, the onus over to classroom teachers to inform as to where our students are at, uh, you know, particularly on their return at this point before you can make any decisions. 
And I think that's maybe sometimes where we've gone wrong in the past that we just continue through the content and continue through that, that curricular journey without really establishing, coming back to the, the, the core principles of, you know, what do students know now? What do they need to know in order to, to make them, you know, to take them to the next step? And um, that focus on responsive teaching is going to be more imperative than ever before because there are certain aspects particularly you know more hierarchical subjects it will become very quickly apparent like science or maths where if you're trying to teach the next stage of a concept students won't be able to access it if they haven't grasped the first one if i'm trying to teach something like you know um the the formation of a cell i'm not going to be able to move on to look at organisms i'm not going to be able to move on to look at anything if if the student hasn't grasped what you know the, the entities of the cell the various features of the cell so um we can have the very best of intentions but it has to be led by the students um and you know the, there's a great deal of reading coming out of the EF at the moment around intervention particularly for students with SEND um I think it's really interesting that it's being brought more to the forefront that um students the majority of students will experience um some form of SEND need over their their um, educational journey and that it isn't a fixed state it's a it, you know it's a it's not a linear path and so continually being formed informed by students is going to be a really definitive starting point i think for for school leaders rather than trying to create a plan um without the available data there to inform the plan first of all i think is going to be key and and as you say they're sort of really highlighting the imperative of that quality first teaching recognizing there might be less time than there had traditionally been for that kind of overarching revision reteaching um piece yeah. we're currently kind of because um, as part of my other role i work for teacher development trust in the um advising on the mpq content and there's there's such a an emphasis on on tiered level support of placing you know that as you say that importance on quality first teaching and realizing that nothing can replicate or or compensate for that um and no intervention of the world is is, is going to be better than than you know a really high quality teacher in front of students and so starting with that as the plan as such is a is a really good starting point and then being led by by subject level curriculum, definitely in those conversations with subject leaders um, around n knowledge and content, as opposed to data and assessment, I think is a, is a really key point. Great stuff. And anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we close? Oh, yeah, um, only really that, um, you know, it's a really exciting um, year for Lit Drive. We've just launched our third cohort for our mentoring programme, which is really exciting. Some of the, the tweets have come through. It's just, yeah, it's really exciting to see, especially early career teachers to be excited about being um, subject mentored. And um, our um, online provision for CPD continues this term with a view to very excitingly um, reverting back to our, our regional events in the January. So um, that's kind of what we've got going on at the moment. Great stuff. And we'll put all the details uh, uh, in links in the in the podcast notes. Well, thank you so much, Kat, for taking the time to talk to us today about you've covered a lot of ground, uh, <laughs> lots, lots of food for thought. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. 
Members of the Key for School leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions. <laughs>